Hello, and welcome to PCB Chat, where we talk with experts across the printed circuit design, manufacturing, and electronic supply chain fields. I'm Mike Buto, Editor-in-Chief of PCDNF and Circuits Assembly. First, a word from today's sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Turnkey Pro from Sierra Circuits. What if you could source your components, upload your specs, and receive an instant quote in less than 15 minutes? What if your designs could be fabricated and assembled and delivered to your door in five days with a guarantee of zero defects? Then try Turnkey Pro from Sierra Circuits for your next design and use promo code PCBCHAT to receive $200 off your next order. 50 years for any company in any industry is really impressive. I read where the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says only about one-third of companies make it to their 10th birthday, and about one in five make it to their 20th. For the PCB industry, it's even more so. Japan probably has a few shops that are older than 50 years, given that it was an early adopter of printed circuit technology, and many of the OEMs from that day are still around making PCBs. In Germany, Schweitzer Electronics started building boards in 1958. We have perhaps seven shops in North America, depending on what you count. Worldwide, I'm guessing there's fewer than 20 that can claim 50 years in circuit board fabrication. In the past month, one more company joined the ranks, IMI Incorporated, based in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And our guest today is the President and Chief Executive of IMI, Peter Bigelow. Peter, welcome to PCB Chat. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. So in North America, I can think of just over a handful of circuit board fabricators that have been in business for more than 50 years. In the U.S., there's Compunetics, which was founded in 1968. In Canada, LaserTech was also founded in 68. Here in Massachusetts, uh, Epic was formed in 1952. It was a merger of Electrolab and Print Electronics Corporation, but it no longer makes boards anywhere near where it was launched. Its NetVIA operation, which is in the Dallas suburbs, is a relative spring chicken at only 35 years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, ITL circuits in Toronto will turn 50 this year, and Sunstone outside Portland, Oregon, will hit the half-century mark next year. Uh, Sheldahl, which I was lucky enough to visit several years ago outside of uh, Minneapolis, was launched in 1955, but it didn't start building flex circuits until more than 20 years later. And as far as I can tell, the granddaddy of of everybody here in North America is probably Method, which dates to 1946 and started producing circuit boards in 1951. A lot of folks might remember Hadco. Uh, Its first PCB shop was founded in Derry, New Hampshire in 1966. What's left of Hadco is now owned by Sanmina, but none of those older operations survived. I'm sure I'm missing a few, and I'll probably hear about it, (laughs) but that's okay. So, Peter, my first question is, how did you do it? <laughs> well, it was, uh, it's been an interesting ride. I've only been here for about 18 years. Um, the, the company was founded actually as an OEM back in 1971, making memory cards. So they're doing the fabrication, but they were uh, had their own proprietary product. And as the, you know, memory world, you know, transitioned from, cards to chips, um, the original company, Integrated Memories Incorporated, 
um, hence IMI, um, changed direction, became a fabricator of products, and in 1979 changed their names to IMI Incorporated to kind of break the ties to the, uh, the memory card um, legacy they had. And since then, we've been one of those companies that has kind of been flying under the radar. We, you know, we kind of have done what everyone else has done. You work your way up the layer count. You work your way down the cycle time in a traditional FR4 world. And that was the space we were in really into the 1990s when we started to embark on processing PTFE laminates, Teflons, and you know, that, that's been kind of our saving grace because obviously in the, um, you know, 2000, 2004 range, everything shifted from domestic manufacturing to Asia. And, you know, we were one of those companies that theoretically should never have made it. We used to go to IPC meetings, listen to the investment bankers talk about if you're under a certain size, you're, you weren't going to make it. Um, and it appears that it was the only those companies that did make it. Uh, the big guys uh, fell victim to to the Asian um, cost reduction uh, mantra that the OEMs, you know, were, were following. So I guess, how do we make it? How do we do it? A lot of it was having good people and being flexible enough to change direction when need be. A lot of it was luck. We happened to be, you know, a small enough company and under the radar, so we didn't have to deal with what the larger companies may have. And and we've been pretty conservative. We've never tried to, you know, ramp up sales just to go public or to try to, to do things that would damage the balance sheet. I mean, clearly in the circuit board industry, there are enough natural causes to damage a balance sheet, and you don't want to go out of your way to do anything else. So we're still here, and uh, we're, we're, we're plugging along and doing quite well, thank you very much, um, despite the fact that uh, we're an aging company. Well, you don't look a day over 49. <laughs> so you mentioned you know, one of the advantages is that you produce certain boards that aren't readily available elsewhere. You want to talk a little bit more about the technology and uh, the the types of uh, end products that it, you know that the uh, Teflon boards go in, and you know maybe a little bit about just what makes building PTFE a unique process. So let's work our way into that. the The applications which our product go into are are primarily RF microwave type applications, and and that includes military and DOD-focused kinds of applications as well as homeland security-type uh, applications. So you're dealing with high reliability. Uh, what makes it challenging with fabricating on a PTFE laminate is that, you know, these are being used for signal, not just for electrical. So suddenly the, the quality of line uh, vari- variations are, is, is critical. You, you can't have, you know, lines which are getting larger and smaller. You've got to be very tight in how you process your plating, how you do your etching. Um, you're processing on materials which are either quite brittle, have a lot of ceramic in, the, um, in them, or are quite soft. So you've got movement, tremendous movement, uh, which makes registration a, a real challenge. And having come out of a more traditional FR4 uh, environment, you know, most companies want to gun and run. They, they want to be able to set equipment up and just 
you know, run tons of volume through and they get their efficiencies and by, by being able to get more product over a piece of equipment in, in less time. When you're processing a PTFE laminate, it's the reverse. Everything becomes basically a craft project where you have to really dial in the, uh, the settings on the equipment and you have to keep adjusting them. You know, registration has to be adjusted all the time. And even with the advent of direct imaging and a lot of the newer technologies we've been able to put into our facility, you still are fighting the movement of the material. So a lot of companies don't want to bother with that. It becomes too labor intense, becomes too much risk. The laminate's much more expensive than traditional FR4 laminates. And, and so they shy away from it. And that leaves an opening for companies that want to try something different, which is what we have done, um, where we've set our shop up where it's not automated, where we have to have the skill set of the employees to look at the, the job as it's going through each stage and at various times maybe make adjustments to the equipment or pull in a process engineer to help them um, work through if, if things aren't looking quite the way they want them to look. All that takes time. All that means you're relatively low throughput. And if you're not set up for that, you're probably not going to do quite well. But if you are set up for it, you can do very well. What was the question again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you touched on employees, and I want to get back to that in just a moment. But you also mentioned about how the way that the material moves. And you know, listeners will certainly know that traditional uh, rigid boards will move different than, say, you know, polyester or uh, polyimid uh, used in flex. But they may not know as much that rigid would move differently than PTFE as well. So it has to create some issues for you when it comes to registration and, and processing. Correct. We, we tend to run on smaller panels. Um, and a lot of what we do are considered substrates, which are very small format uh, types of materials on, on very thin, um, you know, Rogers material at 5880 or 6003. And so we've got a lot up in a panel and, and you know, we process smaller panels. It's better to do that than try to, to, you know, fight the registration problems and the movement of the material on an 18 by 24 panel. So we tend to do 18 by 24 on traditional FR4 that we run, and we tend to run smaller panels when we're running the PTFE materials. That's one process, you know, alteration. Second thing is you really can't effectively run, let's say, a shadow or black hole type of a process. You need to be electrolysts, and so you, you've got to be more traditional in the way that you run your processes or your plant. And almost everything we have at this point in time runs with some level of gold on it. And so you've got to have, you have to have pretty robust plating uh, schemes for you know, surface finish. All of that, you know, everyone will say yes. We do that in the HDI world. We do that in the backplane world. We do that in. But everyone also knows that within a given plant, you'll you'll find that a guy who does let's say HDI really well probably isn't going to run other products through that plant because they have it dialed in for that type of technology. Same thing here. We, we are really dialed in for, for running the, the PTFE materials. And, and so we're, we're not one size fits all. We're a niche manufacturer and, and we're very happy to be in that kind of a space because we know we do our niche as well as anybody in the industry domestically or globally. Um, and, and we take great pride in that. Uh, you can't dismear it either, correct? 
you can, but you have to do it a little bit differently. <laughs> I won't. Semi-proprietary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So you had a ceremony at the company late last month, which, as it turned out, was my first facility visit in a year. So thank you, COVID. Uh, during the ceremony, you made note to acknowledge all the stakeholders, which, of course, start with the employees, but you mentioned some others as well. Uh, do you want to discuss that a little bit for our audience? Sure. Um, you know, I'll say this all started at some point where with an ISO or AS audit where I was beat up because I didn't have something about the you know, the goal of the company making money for the shareholder or shareholders or whatever. And I said, I... We're a privately held company. I'm concerned about the stakeholders because, you know, it's great to make money and, and that everybody wants to do that. You, you can't reinvest if you're not making making a profit. But there's so many people that can impact that. And it includes your suppliers. If you don't have a solid relationship with your supply base, um, you're, you're going to have problems. And those problems are going to be costly. If you don't have good relation with your bank or with leasing companies, you're not going to be able to you know, get the equipment you need when you need it. If you don't have a good relationship with the community you're in, uh, the, the town or city, um, you're, you're going to have various problems as well. You know, your utilities, you know, you can work your way through a list. They all impact what you do, how you do it, and how well you're able to um, run your business. So I'm, I'm always concerned about the stakeholders and they, they definitely include customers. If you don't have a good relationship with your customers, if you don't treat them properly, um, things aren't going to work. And we as a company at times have fired customers because they just aren't a good match for what we do and how we do it. And then, of course, it's the employees. And um, especially when you have, you know, say a non-automated manufacturing processes, you need to have good people. And those people have to have to you know, care about what they're doing. They have to be willing to try new things when new materials and new processes get introduced. And they have to have an attention to detail to be able to make sure that we're producing good products. So all of the above, um, and especially the employees, are what make a company a successful company versus just uh, an entity which shows up and, and collapses under its own weight at some point. And when we met, which I think was probably around the late 1990s, the industry was obviously at a very different period. Uh, the U.S. was the largest or kind of running neck and neck with Japan as the largest uh, in terms of revenue uh, printed circuit industry in the world. And the investment bankers were all over the place. And then after 2001, 2002, they kind of went away and we sort of forgot about them for a long time. And and now it seems like they're they're back, right? And the industry is is going through a little bit of a transition once again, where there's investment coming from the outside, and some some merger and acquisition activity seems to be heating up. Uh, does it remind you at all of the late 1990s, or does it seem more, uh, how shall I put it, uh, you know, rational today? Well, it in some ways is very different from the 1990s, but it's no less irrational. The, I think that that bankers in particular, you know, and private equity don't really understand manufacturing. They never have. They probably never will. Um, and it was true then. It's true now. So there were a lot of 
back in the, the 90s, you know, the whole thing was, you know, you've got to get enough bulk and you got to build up and market share and all that. But many of the mergers at that point in time were really the cultures of the businesses just didn't didn't work very well. And a lot of those facilities didn't make it as much because the the culture of the acquired company was not really in sync with the culture of the acquiring company, which makes making decisions much more difficult when you have to make decisions, especially when you get into a situation which happened back then where the migration of product to offshore ramped up so quickly that the companies that could move quickly to come up with a counter um, strategy, you need to have everybody singing off the same sheet of music. And that wasn't always the case. Today, you've got it more select. You still have the, the, the bottom fishers looking for a bargain. I want to buy the customer list. I really don't care about the manufacturing processes. I can just put the customer list into somebody else's facility. And that rarely works because, as I just went through, every company is a little bit different how they do things. You have some which are looking at buying quality business units, and I think that they will um, probably you know, do well. But you have to be very careful that you're not buying in the sake of just to buy, to say that you're doing something to be a shaker and mover in the industry, but there's a little bit of, uh, of logic behind it. We're in a pretty high-risk industry when you think about it. We're all job shops. Uh, we don't control our destiny with our own products. We're at the whim of if our customers have heavy demand, we'll do well because the tide will rise. If our customers don't do well, don't have sales, don't need product, we have to be, hunk, be able to hunker down in an effective way. And um, so that's all high risk. And I come back to not sure the investment banking folk really understand that. Um, I think when you have uh, management of, of companies who have been in the industry long enough, they do get it and they hopefully are um, you know, prepared to, to lead their companies through the bad times as well as through the good times. So, but I'll say that the, what will be interesting is the whole focus on trying to bring product back to the U.S., especially as relates to the DOD wanting to have a robust supply chain in, in, in the United States. And I'm, I'll be interested how that, that plays out because either the DOD is going to have to get used to dealing with lots of small companies which don't run like a bureaucracy, or there's going to have to be some significant investment in new facilities in North America and in America in particular to supply the, the base. And it'll be interesting how that plays out or if it plays out. Listeners may recognize your name from your monthly columns under the heading ROI in PCDNF and Circuits Assembly. One issue you've noted over the years is the difficulty in attracting new talent to the industry, although, as you've pointed out, it's not necessarily a printed circuit manufacturing problem. What can or should be done to convince the next generation that making PCBs is a viable and fulfilling career? I think our industry has a little bit of the same problem many industries have and many, many manufacturing industries have, which is for years, the picture's been painted that a factory is a bleak place and there's, you know, you're stuck doing a mundane job over and over again. And, and we as an industry really need to change that, that vision of what we are. Um, 
I can't think of any fabrication facility I've been in anywhere in the world, even the largest in, in China, where there isn't a lot of innovation taking place on the shop floor, where you need to have skilled people and they, they have an opportunity to really make an impact on what goes on. I've been to a lot of assembly facilities and they have the same thing. There's a lot of on the floor decisions being made by skilled people. And that can be exciting. And I think that excitement for some reason um, isn't, isn't presented uh, in the manufacturing sector as it should be. It's not just being on a line and cranking a bolt on a wheel or you know, feeding a machine and then unfeeding a machine. It's, it's really looking at the product and, and working with, with a, a team around you to come up with better processes when a challenging design comes along and, and thinking about how you can you know, make old equipment dance like a child and make new equipment fit into, into an established manufacturing facility. All of that's exciting, and we have to sell that excitement. I think the other side of it is, and especially in the fabrication world, we have to get used to opening the walls a little bit. I think there's a lot of, of fabrication companies in particular who are still trying to get away paying as little as possible for talent. And I don't think that's a long-term viable option. I think that, in fact, you might want to spend more money and get better people so that you have a, a better long-term you know, perspective of uh, success. You know, you're coming up on your 20-year anniversary with the company. Correct. And uh, where does it go from here? I know that you have, I think you have, at least your son is uh, an engineer, correct? Correct. He's a chemical engineer. So any interest in entering the industry? Have you sold him on it yet? He has, as of now, he has no um, no interest in, in, in the business. Um, I've tried to keep the family out of it. I, I spent enough years running a family business to know that it's a lot easier if, if you don't have that extra distraction. Um, and so I, you know, I'm not sure how, what he will want to do long term, but he has not, he's not involved in, in this company. He works for uh, electric boat making submarines. I think he kind of finds that cooler than the, uh, uh, rephrase it. I think he thinks the end product is cooler than the end product we make. I, I, I listen to his challenges and they're the same, the same problems we go through in, in any manufacturing facility of trying to um, get, get, the team to work and get things out the door, you know, so, you know, I, the, I'm, I'm not going anywhere for a while, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how things play out. But I think the whole industry has a lot of that going on where there's a lot of aging in the ranks of the employment employees, as well as the ownership of many of the companies. Some of the ones you mentioned, I know the, the owners of some of those companies and they're, um, you know, they're like me and they're, um, August years of her life and, and um, transition is always something you think about. My, my goal at least is making sure that the transition is, is a rational one. It's one where, um, you know, I, I get contacted all the time by people who would love to buy into my business, not knowing what it is. And their background's always the same. They, they turned around a division of Microsoft or something like that. And I'm going, that's, you know, forget it. You had no <laughs> clue. But um, uh, but I, the, those pieces will, will come together when the time is right for them to come together. In the meantime, it's it's trying to make sure you get good people and you keep the facility, you know, with the right equipment, um, and you know, keep focused on on being a long term viable uh, supplier uh, versus. Uh, 
trying to make this quarter, you know, beat next quarter, beat the one before. Um, and, and that's what we do. We look at the long term and we try to make sure that we're making the right decisions to make sure all of our stakeholders are, are successful and, uh, and valued long term. Well, thanks, Peter. Uh, I appreciate your, your thoughts on both the company and the industry. Uh, our guest today has been Peter Bigelow of IMI Incorporated. And a hearty congratulations on 50 years in business and the best for 50 more. Thank you. Appreciate it. We, uh, we'll be knocking your door when we get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll probably be here too. Yeah. <laughs> this podcast has been brought to you by Turnkey Pro from Sierra Circuits. Turnkey Pro is the simplest platform for sourcing all your components, uploading specs for fabrication and assembly, and receiving an instant quote, all online in fewer than 15 minutes. Try Turnkey Pro by Sierra Circuits today and use promo code PCBCHAT to receive $200 off your next order. For PCB Chat, this is Mike Buto. Have a nice day. Beep.